millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the 357th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by wonderful patrons Cole Needham, gonna send you a hat, Cole, and I'm very excited to do it, and Connor. Thanks, guys. Today on the show, we have James Genn. He's an accomplished director with a pretty impressive list of credits. He's here to talk to us about directing on the show Ginny and Georgia. Boy, he's got a lot of stuff. He's got The Good Doctor. He did some episodes of The Hardy Boys, Moonshine, Turner and Hooch, Charm, Private Eyes. The list goes on and on. He's got a ton of experience. We talk a lot about being the producing director as well as being a guest director on all sorts of different shows. What does that mean? That he's directing episodes and also helping others? other directors direct their episodes right essentially supervising the directors as a director himself like a a person who knows what the job entails and can kind of help guide the guest directors through the different specifics of the show that they're shooting yeah and i was shocked that even though he's canadian he is actually really nice yeah crazy crazy right unheard of um no really really awesome really generous with his time. Yeah. You know, every once in a while on the show, like you have a conversation with a director and you feel kind of like recalibrated afterwards. You're reminded why you love this, the good parts and the bad parts. You know, it's a really honest, frank conversation. I guess I'm saying I left a little inspired, Oren. Yeah, me too. I kind of like in an odd way felt like he's one of the few guests that that really treated us like we're also directors. Not that it matters. Okay. You don't need to be treated like this. It is nice. Yeah. It's like, I think that there is that, that every once in a while, a director will come in and they won't realize we're directors. And then one of us will say something that will clue them in. Sometimes people just are like, just treat us like we're, you know, interns at a junket. I think a lot of people that come on here are, you know, doing press tours for whatever project is being released at the time. So they are kind of being interviewed by a lot of media outlets and things. And so when they are lucky enough to be on the Just Shoot It podcast, they might think we're just like all the other ones until we ask them how they came up with that one weird shot. And then they fall in love with us. Anyhow. Talking about inside baseball. Well, we had this awesome talk with James. Uh, you know, he kind of illuminates what it's like shooting TV, what it's like shooting in Canada. You should check out his show, Ginny and Georgia. There's two seasons out on Netflix right now. And it's kind of a genre bending kind of story that works on multiple levels that I think is really easy to enjoy, no matter who you are, no matter how Canadian you are. Before we hop into our conversation with James, I do want to remind listeners 
that if you go to patreon.com slash just shoot it pod you can throw the show a couple bucks we've got server fees we've got advertising fees we've got editors to pay oh we just got so many fees my taxes it's a surprise yeah oren's taxes paying for his car lease on his third car this kid's gonna drive eventually who knows i need to drive a car that matches my outfit it keeps us going uh, literally we wouldn't be able to make the show without your patronage so if you think that this episode or any of the episodes that you've ever listened to in your whole darn life gave you a little something kept you inspired kept you committed to the show or that you learned something that you could apply in your practice uh, consider dropping us a buck or two. My guess is that 90% of our listeners hit the fast forward 30 seconds right when we start talking about Patreon. But if you did not fast forward through this, uh, you know what we should do? We should get some testimonials. If you ever learned anything on the show and then used it successfully, just record some audio, email it to us. We'll play it on the next Patreon pitch. Anyhow, email us. Tell us uh, what you like about the show, what you hate about the show. We love to hear from you. Uh, go to patreon.com slash just shoot a pod. If you give us 20 bucks, I will personally mail you a hat without any further delay, except for maybe an ad or two. Join us in our conversation with James Gen. Okay, we are here with James Gen. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I apologize for asking you the question that you probably get from every person. But how is it being a director with a name that's so similar to another director? Yeah, it's funny. I actually, uh, there's crews in Vancouver that have worked with James Gunn. And I've been mistaken when people come up and say, oh, I'm working on your show. And I say, no, I'm sorry, that's not me. Uh, So yeah, I kind of wish he would change his name, but he, he hasn't listened to me on that one yet. I know. Well, he's kind of fading, fading away. I don't think yeah, there's yeah, yeah. much more coming out of that game. Fewer credits, certainly. Yeah. yeah his name's not going to be on anything coming up. But you, and you do, I mean, obviously he's like, a, right, known for like superhero movies and things, but you do a lot of genre stuff and kind of cross genre work. Like mm-hmm. what, how would you define yourself as a director? Oh my God. In terms of what I've chosen to do over the years? Yeah, or if someone was like, "What kind of stuff do you direct?" What? What's yeah, the answer? Yeah. How does your agent pitch you? <laughs> That's a really good question. It's it's always been eclectic, and I've always taken a lot of pride in uh, being someone that could shift around and take on voices. And uh, I always loved the challenge and the excitement of doing different things. So uh, my career has kind of defied that, you know pegging myself into a single genre and that's been a good thing that might also be something to do with the advantage of being in canada where you get access to a different variety of things there's less directors that are having to focus on a single genre or not i started out in my tv directing career directing comedy so that was you know you guys have done comedy as well that was such a great place to start and sort of covers so many things and that it weirdly branched me out into things like procedural and Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they you know, did horror comedies and that, uh, went into other genre stuff. So I just, I had the luck of being able to mix it up and shift around. Let's talk about that just a, a tiny bit more. Cause I think mm-hmm. that's really interesting. Would you say that the horror comedies were maybe like, kind of like half steps into other oh. worlds? You know what I mean? Like it's hard to go from comedy to straight drama, but like, if you have like, you know, a dramedy under your belt, then maybe they're like, well, James could do, could be, you know, just, just stop making jokes and he can do it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. Absolutely with dramedy. So horror comedy, maybe not so much, but hor the horror comedy stuff I did uh, earlier on was great mm -hmm. because you learn all kinds of stuff about effects and VFX and special effects and uh, doing, doing gags and that kind of thing. But uh, for me, where it evolved from was uh, hour-long drama comedies, dramedy. Mm -hmm. So suddenly your uh, work becomes a lot more dramatic uh, overnight, really. And you get to exercise those muscles and stretch stretch your legs in that world. So yeah, that that was the bridge for me. But don't you think dramedy is like so much easier than comedy? Like <laughs> it's for because if a scene's not if you're not getting laughs and you're like, yeah, that's the drama part. You know? <laughs> it is obviously it's, it's forgiving. Now I wasn't doing like multicam sitcom style comedy. I was doing single camera half hour comedies for Canadian network TV when I started out in my early thirties. And, uh, and that too also had drama elements to it. Right. So, right. um, yeah, it's the, that, that to me is the stepping stone. And so now I feel like just looking at your credits, you know, you have kind of a lot of like action drama TV, mm -hmm. stuff, yeah. a lot of, obviously like some of the stuff you worked on is like a kit for Canadian markets, but a lot of it kind of feels like network kind of big network TV shows, right? Like a mm -hmm. charmed, like yeah. Hardy boys, the yeah. good doctor. Yeah. 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 The good, the good doc. I just, I'm just finishing up right now. It's like my last day of editing on the episode I just finished. And there's one that I did in October that airs on Monday, actually. So that's fairly new in my life. But years ago, I did a, a medical drama. So again, I went from doing com, com dramedies to mm -hmm. procedural cop shows. And then I got hooked into a medical drama and worked as a producing director on that in Canada. Um, so then years down the line, uh, it comes up where I'm in Vancouver and good doctor is shooting and, uh, the agents are able to pitch me for that. So, and for our listeners, just that real quick, can you, what do you mean by producing director? What's the difference between that and a director? Oh, uh, well, a regular, uh, guest director will come in and do an episode or a block of two episodes or three episodes. And a producing director will stay on and cover a whole bunch of other things that are along the lines of directorial work that isn't directing. So you'll be supporting the other directors along the way, working in post a lot. So what's the difference between that and like show running? Oh, well, show running these days is uh, almost entirely from the writing department. So mm -hmm. there are show running producing directors out there that I've worked with, and it might be more of a Canadian thing. But um, show running is the top of the leadership pole in the television world. The producing directors are people handling production. It's a creative leadership role. So you're creatively in charge of the hundreds of people on set that are, are executing. I guess the easiest way to describe it is uh, in show running, you're, you're creating the stories from top to bottom and you're leading that. And, and uh, the director is a storyteller. So a producing director is doing what they can in order to make things come alive and come about, right? You're not originating the ideas, but you're um, executing them as best you can. And um, all the way through post, like you're, you're looking at edits of other directors' episodes and things yeah, like that. Yeah, that's right. And which that is a huge uh, learning, learning experience just to see how other directors handle the same material. It's, it's really amazing. It's the same for any kind of directing, but the job differs every time. It's a, it's a little different based on what the particular show needs. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How you can fit in and make yourself useful. I think even as a guest director, you kind of have to look at the situation, look at the play, see who's involved. What kind of leadership is the showrunner doing what are the other executive producers on board how are they met how are they running the show who's in charge who's got the puck before you jump on the ice and start trying to score goals you wait for the pass right i'll take your word for it uh, <laughs> uh, you know it's it's funny one of the reasons that Oren and i started making the show was that mm-hmm. you know directors there, there's only one director on set most of the time right and so one of the big advantages of getting to talk to an awesome director every week for years and years now is you get to kind of pick up all of their different little tricks and moves and, mm-hmm. you know, learn from them essentially. Right. Um, yeah. And I've always yeah, thought, feel free to drop as many tricks and moves. As, <laughs> but by as all means, by all means, that's what we're here for. But never occurred to me that, uh, as the directing producer, you also get to kind of absorb you know, a handful of different people's tricks and moves and guide them, obviously, like you're there, but like you kind of get to pick up and learn from them as well. Yeah, um, yeah. I always knew that that's an awesome job. Now I'm even more jealous. It's pretty cool. <laughs> There's so few chances that directors get to communicate with each other. That's what's amazing about your podcast. Um, the most you get, I think, is those friendships, people you know who are also doing this job and they're loving it, right? You guys yourselves would probably get to share a lot of things. And um, there's very few times that somebody said to me one time in directors that directing is a very lonely job. Sure. And it's a funny thing about it because you're surrounded by hundreds of people all day long and you're communicating with them. It's an extremely social job. You're the center of sort of a a social community. Mm -hmm. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, when I was in high school or something, I wasn't the center of my social community at all. But in my job, 
I'm automatically that. You could you could step into any conversation on set and people are going to turn and let you in even if you have some stupid thing to say, right? Yeah, I find that most directors become directors because no one listened to them in high school. <laughs> that's pretty possible. Maybe that's my, that's the case with me. Yeah. Um, but uh, in, in producing directing, yes, you get to... I, the, the more experience I've had with this job is working on shows where other producing directors were were already there right mm-hmm. and so i saw the job done in a lot of different ways uh so when i had the few chances that i've had to do it i really set out to say i know i know how to make this job really good and useful and do a good job a lot of it quite frankly is pretty hands-off mm-hmm. um you you a director comes in i when i'm a director coming in on a show i want to uh know that people have put their trust in me, right? Uh, they're going to support you. A really great show with a really experienced group of producers are going to know how to get the most out of their director, right? So it, it's different every time, but you look at it, um, what, how can you support that director and give them room to do what they do what they need to do and get give them confidence, right? Can you give us some like, like more practical, like specifics? Like what? When you say pr- the producers are supporting you or, mm. you know, that you're supporting them, like, are they asking you for a shot list? Like what, like, are there some real specific things that, mm-hmm. um, and it's, you say, I don't work with shot lists. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And I'd love and, like the, the contrast between like, oh, like maybe a, a showrunner or, or team early in their career, like a little less experience. And then what, what's the difference between like someone who really knows how to get the best out of people and maybe gotcha. some early mistakes? You know, it's a, it's a personality thing. Sometimes in my experience, I've had situations where, you know, pe- people bring all their own personalities to the job as a director and they're going to bring that to the job as a producer, right? So um, if they feel like they need to be more involved than they are, then you have to figure out a way to manage that as a director, right? Mm-hmm. Um, same with the cast. You're going to get people that you, every actor that you encounter, you're assessing how do you react to that person to get the best work out of them? How do you su- support them, create an environment for them where they're going to give them the best work? So same should go for people's relationships with directors. And, and that can vary every time. You're saying you need to know how to support actors, how to get the best performances out of these people. But I assume on TV, a lot of times, kind of like in commercials, you're probably not getting to spend a ton of time with the actors before you're directing no. your episode. Like, how do you how do you learn, you know, oh, she likes, you know, no rehearsals and he, you know, mm. wants like precision, you know, blocking. Yeah, you um, learn that on the fly. A lot of times you learn the, the big, the broad strokes in prep. Um, in cases where, uh, like for instance, in the opening weeks of the second season of Ginny and Georgia, the cast had not worked together since the, before the pandemic, but the second season was delayed because of the pandemic. So it's an, a cast that had worked very closely with each other, but they've not had a lot of time with each other. So we did little warm up rehearsals. We just hung out and got a chance to, for them to get back into the groove. And there was a, also a chance for me to see what they were like as people. Other times it will be a tone meeting. Uh, a, a great showrunner, a writer will say, here's what we found with this actor. This is something they really respond to. This is how they treat this material. And um, uh, we like it like this, we like it like that. And that's really valuable information. But 90 whatever 5% of this is coming from 
just being in the zone on set, which mm-hmm. you guys are familiar with, that is that's the awesome place that the reason why we do this job is that amazing feeling you get where you're just grooving with people and you're seeing how they perform and you're watching their work and you're looking for very simple ways to um, elevate it every every chance you get, right? And and keep it on on target with what you what your story you're telling. I, I love your point though about you said simple things that you can do to to get the most mm. out of somebody's performance because i think that sometimes you know you think oh i want to have like kind of big swooping vast mm-hmm. changes i really want to move the the iceberg on this one and i think that again the more experience you get the more you realize like oh it's probably just like the teeny tiny things where you can take it from an a to an a plus i think is, mm. is really fascinating yeah, I mean, I love that. I, I've, I, I'm a hundred over a hundred TV episodes down the road, and I did indie features and stuff like that. But I do recall when when I started, I've been through every bad iteration of evolution of as a director along the sure. way, right? You I had recall, a scarf on once upon a time, is what you're saying, <laughs> Jeff. One of those big cones, all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. I remember a short film I did in my 20s where I really sat the actors down, and then I tried to make their words come out of their mouth precisely how I heard mm-hmm. them in my head. Uh, and mm-hmm. it, it was, I felt that was the only and way. It was a I great could... short film. I'm sure it was perfect. <laughs> and yeah, it won <laughs> Toronto. I totally, Toronto film. Totally <laughs> um, and I, and I, and I, and somehow they cooperated with it. And, uh, but I learned very quickly that that wasn't the best way to, to get the best work out of people. Um, the efficiency of communication to me is, is the name of game. And also just, also it's, it sounds so weird, but just creating the environment for them. I just, mm-hmm. A couple of weeks ago, a week and a half ago, I was working with a really, I won't say the actor's name, but a, a really amazing, great senior actor. And we got into a few takes on her coverage and she stopped and she said, I'm not, I'm not getting it or I'm not connecting is with the words she used. And this is someone who was a very technical actor, right? Somebody who, and I was there, I was new to them and they, they needed a, they needed a really engaged conversation with it, with the scene. So all we did was say, okay, okay, let's talk about this. And wh- where were you before this happened with this character? What happened? You went out the door and you had that and he would have said this and he would have said that and you would have learned this about him. And then, and then that's how the conversation came in. And it, whether that was the right thing to say or not, it just set the scene and, and put, put the actor in a, a, a place of ease. And some, sometimes maybe, maybe I think in that moment, it was just about them knowing that I was watching and I was um, paying attention and mm-hmm. looking for what was authentic and, and truthful and beautiful because really we are sitting in your monitor. That's what you're looking for. Right. And it's easy for, for people to underestimate that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Cause you're just, you're behind sure. the monitor. And I yeah. think, and also I think a lot of people are, you know, there's, I, in television there's all kinds of directors coming through right and there's at all levels of types of communicators and um i hear actors say all the time that they're that this this director was focused on shots or this director was great at communicating about story and not so much the other thing right so they are there if you put yourself in their shoes they're also trying to assess you and say how how can i uh work best with this person and and get the um, you know, best out of them as a director, right? Yeah. I imagine there's this weird thing where as a TV director, you really want the actors to like you, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like very different than a feature film, like your indie film director, right? 
yeah. that's like the actors want the director to like them so that they hire them again. Yeah. But on a TV show, it's like, I, I mean, I've heard many, many power, many power dynamics, basically. Yeah. Right? And yeah. many stories of like a DP not coming back for the second season because one of the actors didn't like them, you know, like that's yeah. a super common thing where the, the cast. So the as a director, yeah. if you feel like you kind of like bummed an actor out or said something that like rubbed someone the wrong way, you probably feel like you need to make up for it. Yeah. To make, yeah. To make up with them somehow. Right. I would think. It happens all the time. It happens constantly. It happens every day. You're going to do that and you're going to say the wrong thing and you say the right thing. Uh, some directors, in my understanding, in my experience, are not like that. They care less about it and they still have other charm or, or personality about them that earns their respect in the, in the group. But you are a guest, right? Mm-hmm. You're seeing what the culture is there and you're trying to make yourself as valuable and as useful as you can in that culture. And that's what's going to get you the best work, I think. Also, though, there's a really important milestone that you should look forward to in your career is when you stop worrying too much about what people's impression of you as a person is on a moment-to-moment basis when you're in that zone on set. It's mm-hmm. It's, it's about trying to focus and put the, the work you're making with that person um, as a priority and put that first, right? So, yeah, um, to me, that, that's what's going to automatically give you uh, a, a strong relationship with people because they're going to see that you've built a, you know, built a collaboration with them. As yeah. A, with your next yeah. So, so you're saying that basically if you get over yourself and focus on the work... <laughs> people will like you more for it kind of right yeah i don't and i do as a person i'm not a bossy person as by nature i'm not a I'm not a person that feels like they need to be in charge all the time when i first started out in directing television i relied entirely on my prep so mm-hmm. i prepped the hell out of my work and knew the material inside and out so that I could think um, spontaneously and th- think intuitively about the, the questions that were flying at me. I still do that, but I'm able to relax more. But uh, in terms what, of... That, what's like some prep that you used to do that you've kind of come to realize is like not as important or like like you're kind of more... It's more of a feeling now <laughs> than like you've written down five different ways to say this line of dialogue or whatever. Okay, well, there's that one thing is that I don't... Right. I, I wouldn't note on ways that things are performed by the actors as much. Contrary to what I just said, there's uh, certainly habits that I've carried through my first days of directing that I do almost ritualistically. Like, for example, I will storyboard out the entire show. It doesn't matter if it's a two shot of whatever, mm-hmm. close ups over the shoulders. I sit down as the... And you draw every over the shoulder every time you're going to cut back to it. With crap. Well, no, no, no. I have a system for doing it, doing it in terms of which shots we do. So Mm -hmm. uh, so I've worked out how to most efficiently, you know, where the cameras are going to be placed and how I I would do it technically. Also, coming from the Canadian system, we started out and in, in comedies, especially we start out with very low budget television. So it's really all about efficiency. And I think over the years, I've really benefited from that training because um, to me, that's often what 
gives you the best results. You're forced to sit down. And the reason why I draw all this stuff out is because I've gone through the process of having to decide what five ways a scene could be shot technically. So when you're on set, I'm able to ignore that and know what I'm going to gain and what I'm going to lose when things inevitably change. So the, the big evolution over the years has been, even though I go through that process of drawing things out technically very carefully, I am really able to let it go when I go to shoot and just let it invent itself a little bit. Let the actors make some calls. Do you share those boards that you draw with like the cinematographer, mm-hmm. producer, um, AD, or are they just in your head? Is it just behind the scenes? Yeah, I guess you would want to, if, if you want to let the actors play a little, I'm assuming you'd light it maybe in a more yeah. freeing way, right? I'll, than if- I'll say this, I, I'm prepping a job right now with a yeah. DP that I love and have worked with for years and years and years. And I, I screen shared my document with him today and we were like going through a shot list or whatever. And I was like, he wasn't, I could tell from the Google doc, he wasn't in there. And I was like, hey man, you want to jump in and make the note here? And he was like, I'm going to be honest. I, that doc doesn't make any sense to me at all. <laughs> it's like the beautiful mind. That's why I don't share. Um, the answer for me is, uh, and I've asked this question a lot, is no, I don't. Like 95% of the stuff is just for my own process and my drawings are not for sharing and my drawings are crappy enough. They're not for anyone else. But there's that every show has a action sequence, a visual effects sequence, a maybe a complicated multi-character blocking situation where an overhead is useful or you're on a exterior location where it's really important where the sun is going to be and where the trucks are going to be and all that stuff. So you would overhead map it out. So during the process of prep, when I, I go through in that pass, I go through the, the script chronologically as if I'm visually telling building and telling the story. When I reach those places where I know, oh, this is something that a piece of uh, my excellent uh, iPad artwork is going to come in handy, then I'll draw it out more carefully and I'll color it in and I'll use, you know, green for graph on stuff. So do you use like a stylus? Yeah. Are you like iPad pro, like the whole setup? Yeah. iPad pro. So I, I, for years I did it in a binder with the same, um, you know, setup of 16 by nine frames or whatever your aspect is. And then the right side of the page is an overhead and the left side of the page Mm -hmm. is five, five frames. Um, and then I, I start by saying, what's the sort of, what things do I want to anchor this scene by? It's if, uh, this beat has, wants to play in this style of a 50, 50, two shot or something like that. And I can work out the dynamics of how, how to efficiently, you know, set up the, set up a scene. Do you kind of figure out like the heart of the beat of the scene? Like this scene is about this, this is the most important beat. This is how I would like to see this and then kind of work backwards to mm-hmm. create the rest of the shots based on that. Depending on the scene, yeah, that's often what will happen. Yeah. So it, again, yeah. it's it's scene by scene specific, and it's not the first pass that you've done on the script. Like you've you've done a, a pass where you're just reading it. I've done a pass where I literally write out almost like those AD slug lines, so that you you know what if you had to write it in ten words or less on a single line on a on a mm-hmm. word document, what that scene is about. And then I will have made notes all the way through the script, and then I go through that process of trying to technically turn it into interesting stuff and um i love that and so is the the slug line i I imagine has kind of maybe two effects one is you can kind of succinctly 
you have a, a you know a shorthand for what the scene is quote unquote about, but that also yeah. probably forces you to to distill down what yeah. is the most important to the scene, yeah. and therefore informs that first shot that you want to kind of build the scene around. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It's also awesome. I, awesome. I also think that the whole process of that prep is also really just about memorizing it. It's, it's like you're memorizing it and internalizing it and getting a, a feel for it. Because again, it's about getting yourself into that place when you're on set where you're just in this intuitive mode and you can just be free about it. Like uh, that's where I get the most joy in shooting. Um, it's, it's rare nowadays. Like there, there are times when I started out where, you know, I'd go into some giant thing or some scary thing and I'd be freaking out. <laughs> like I'd be really nervous about it. And so that prep takes that away. I know, I know that I have a plan. It's going to get mutilated and changed and things are going to get ruined, but I know what, what's going to, what, what I'm going to lose and, and gain. Um, I'm curious, like in, when you have like an action scene or something that's a little, that's not a dialogue scene, basically, Mm. like, how do you, do you approach that the same way? Do you say like, Oh, when they fall off the building, this is like the main shot, you know, and, and kind of work backwards to get there. Or do you, like think about like camera like the motion the camera like hand like are you you starting with like this is going to be handheld versus dolly versus techno crane like how do you go into like an action scene firstly those types of things are like like so fun right it's like essential visual storytelling it's like it's so so great i saw some of your commercials on on your site too and you guys get it it's like um it's just really fun to tell stories visually uh so yeah, you, I, I break it down in more or less the same way. It's like there's, um, there's a sequence. You just read a page and you're like, oh my God, how am I going to get, get through this? How do I start opening this thing up and breaking it down? And you say, okay, well, there's this image of a thing flying out of an airplane. The coolest way to see that would be like this. And then after a while, you kind of develop this bucket of your favorite ways to visualize something. and you dig it up and you mix it up and you you spit it out again right so i it's it's true that you know when i've i've the the there's people walking into a room take for example like a two, there's a, a thousand scenes you'll shoot of two people somebody steps into a room and finds somebody else right there's a dozen different ways that different directors are going to have that little moment happened, like what just happened in the background of your, of your, <laughs> <laughs> right? that is, that and is, an actor. Good. is that right? Yeah. Perfect timing. Um, so yeah, so you can, how are you going to do that? Are you going to reveal the person from this, from the first person's point of view? Are you going to be inside of the room from this person's point of view and have it, them enter in? Are you going to, uh, trying to dis- disguise information from the audience? There's just all sorts of fun little tools that we get to use as directors to tell a story that most people don't even recognize that we're, we're able to do. And some people just do it. Some people just mm-hmm. go for it. I, I happen to be someone that likes to sort of think it through. A lot of times those decisions come up based on what other things have already happened in the show or happened nearby in the show or, or you know, so you're not either repeating yourself or... Um, you know, something like that, which is is a very common reason you're going to make these decisions. Again, another reason why you'd start chronologically and play the movie in your head and, 
and draw out a way that it can it can happen. And since you're like a producing director on a lot, you know, like on Ginny and Georgia and some of these other mm-hmm. shows, are you do you start out being like, okay, this would be the coolest shot. Like when this thing falls out of the airplane, I'm, we're going <laughs> to, you know, put a camera on a skydiver and follow it, you know, out. And then we're going to do this. And then when it lands in the ocean, we'll do like this drone shot. And then when like, do, or do you start with the coolest shots and then figure out how to get them? Or do you think more like, okay, we're going to have the crane on that day and the dolly um, okay, and well, like three yeah. hours of sunlight. So what, <laughs> like, what, how can I use those tools and what kind of shots can I get with those? Tools? Like how much are you worrying about production versus vision? It's, a, an, you know? it's an awesome question. And it's, it's probably a combination of the both. It's an awesome question with no easy answer. And it depends on entirely on uh, the project, the day. So you're always trying to fit your material into the resources you have in some way or another. Some cases, it's all about the resources. In a lot of the Canadian television that I began making, it was, you know, what is, what is the most efficient way? How do we actually hide what we're doing and, and cheat it so it looks mm-hmm. bigger than it is? As I've built into these bigger shows with the American money behind them, then sometimes you think that there's some of the things you're doing, there's very little limit. Is it, does it start when we're another? Like, I, I think you can do things like you say, I really want to see this shot happen. And you can mm-hmm. say, well, I can, I can make that happen. And then there, there comes the, how do you make it? Okay. That is a techno crotch and crane shot, whatever it is. Right? So you get to mix it up. There's a doggy in your house now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious, you know, in in talking about like your brainstorming process and the way that you break through or break down each scene, you know, like those, those different sparks, right. That get you excited about a scene or or crack it open for you. Um, I imagine that that has become kind of just part of your process, but as a Mm -hmm. supervising director or producing director, I should say, you're not, literally directing every episode that you're working on right and so like how how does it work when you're not directing right you know you have an awesome idea you're like it would be really cool if if you know you use the techno crane or you you know had somebody jump out of the plane to follow yeah i just put a cable cam on hold for you just in case you think that would be helpful like because it's it's a it's tricky, right? Because it is it's your call, right? If you're like, hey, this yeah. is the best way to shoot this scene, it's kind of your job to be able to, you know, you can put your foot down and, and say that, but also you want to get the best out of your directors. So walk yeah. us through that a little bit. That's that's really fascinating. Uh, I mean, it's come up yeah. a few times, but the majority of my experience has been as that good guest director side of things. And I mm-hmm. ser- I just appreciated the the attitude of the producing director when I worked with them. That they were um, there to support it, right? Mm-hmm. Support the, gotcha. the plan. Gotcha. So, so I approached the job that way as well. And I had very little influence on what the directors, in my experience doing it, uh, what the other But for sure you've been in had. scenarios where like a director comes in, maybe they're an actor turned director or someone that like comes from maybe like a less like camera technical side of things they have amazing ideas on performance and tone and music and all this stuff, but they just want to cover the scene in the most boring way possible. Mm-hmm. They're like, you look at their yeah. shot list and you're like, Oh, got it. A two shot yeah. and two overs. We, okay. uh, 
We don't share shot lists really, maybe because it, because for this very reason, uh, but also <laughs> the DPs are there to support that discussion. Sure, sure. Um, I can give you examples though, like uh, a director saying, I, um, I want to do something special for the, this particular shot at the particular, at the end of the episode. And I'll say, Oh, we can make sure this happens for you. And Mm-hmm. Then they take it off and they take away and they riff how that shot's going to happen. We provide it and, and they go for it. Yeah. So my best experiences with uh, producing directors has been where I, there's very little interaction. There's support. The, the, one of the biggest supports you get is the rundown on how the cast is, how the cast mm-hmm. is to work with. Who, right. Do not look back. him in the eyes. Yeah, <laughs> that stuff is so <laughs> valuable. It's like shorthand. You can, you, it yeah. takes you miles. Also crew and, and you know, what's uh, things to, things to watch out for. Uh, but when it came to um, how you're going to approach things, that your best guide is going to be the script itself, how you, how you visualize it and interpret it. And if the show has done other episodes, of course, that we've seen other directors do on it, right? But the, the directors all stay consistent to the material because mm-hmm. the material itself is consistent, right? There's very little change. I will say, though, the first time I did the producing director job, I recall I had a hand in the, the when we were picking the other directors. It was 22 episodes. So there's a whole lot of directors. And... Some, some of them I remember thinking, oh my God, I love this guy's work. His, his indie feature film is stellar. It's so interestingly shot. It's different. And so we, we bring that person in and you apply that to a fairly, in, mm-hmm. to, a, to a regular audience, a fairly standardly shot television model. And that their work was delivered the uh, basics of what is if as if they looked at previous episodes and say, okay, what I need to do to get through this is shoot it like this. So it looks oh, exactly like this. this you're, show. you're saying like they, they've got the goods, but they're, they're holding back. They're pulling punches because they think that's what you want. It, it feels that way as if they, Interesting. they, they are, yeah. the, what I guess the positive way to look at this is that the directors that I thought really were awesome were ones that threw that away and sort of said, how do I do something mm-hmm. awesome in every little scene? How can I make this interesting right. for myself? How do I elevate it? And they would put interesting shots in there that told the story. It's, it's the matter of you, you sort of, you, you have a framework and you, the script is determining what it, it, you can't stray outside of the lines of the tennis court, right? Your, mm-hmm. your swing can be awesome and your serve can be awesome, but you don't, as long as you stay in those lines, you're doing great. Um, it's, it's not challenging yourself to, to elevate it that I saw as one of the biggest errors that new directors made when they came in. That's really interesting. That's, I feel like in the commercial world, that's like a fine line that we're always trying to not cross, which is like, you know, a lot of times we'll get storyboards for the commercials that we're pitching on and they'll be like, yeah, you just, you didn't add anything. You just pitched us what we showed you. And you're like, well, isn't this what you wanted? Um, and the other times they're like, we showed you what we wanted and you just pitched something totally different. Like <laughs> you have what, to make what, what's wrong with you? Yeah. yeah. So it's like, how do you take people's ideas and like, you know, plus them, like yeah. make them your own or add a little sweet sauce. And yeah. I, it, in the description, you know, something we read about you was you were described, uh, in your work on Ginny and Georgia that you were challenged with enhancing the story stylistically and visually while maintaining the tone that is, that season one established. 
Wow, um, where did you read that? I don't even know where that is. Great PR people, James. <laughs> oh wow, jeez. Uh, um, you know, especially as the first episode takes a dark turn. Yeah, um, wow, that's great. Of, of, of the second season, so how I'm curious, like if you can be specific, like how did you? build on season one of Ginny and Georgia and stylistically change it. Um, you know, we have a, a friend, a DP that he shot the second and third season, Good Girls. And the first season, NBC loved it. Everyone loved it. They wanted to, you know, they brought it back. But then they also wanted to kind of go from a, a more kind of mainstream network look to a more like almost cinematic mm. indie heist film, not indie, but cinematic like heist film look. And so mm. that was one of his jobs was to figure out what that means, you know, while right. still keeping it like a network show. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious about like, you know, was there a Bible? Were there some rules, some approaches, no, camera I mean, moves, things? The, the Bible was the script and the whole first season that I mm -hmm. watched, right? So I didn't have anything to do with the first season. I It wasn't on my radar. I wasn't available for it. But I, like the tens of millions of people in the world that caught that show, caught it in, after the first season. And then I went after it. I, I saw... The oh, genius that those those two uh, the the writers had done for that show, and I wanted to be involved. And for our for our listeners that haven't seen the sh aren't familiar with the mm -hmm. show, can you just give us like a quick log line? Ginny and Georgia, it's a a mother daughter story that sort of jumps through genres on Netflix in the second season about a, a daughter who discovers that her mom is a murderer. But it's sort of it's also a, a YA teen. Yeah. drama and uh, a murder mystery and it touches a lot on uh, issues of and mental a, health and maybe and a little screwball even like you say oh, jumps yeah. through through genres like there are yeah. major tonal yeah. shifts where you're that, like and yeah. that's what that's what i thought when i first came across the project was so cool and interesting and new about it it sort of has this like millennial irreverence to yeah the, the, it's the like the coen brothers doing riverdale or something <laughs> Right, <laughs> which it's I, crazy. I thought was yeah. so cool. And the, the thing is that they had to convince the people. Netflix was so supportive of this project, and uh, but when it, and the and the cast is amazing as well, and so so on side with them. But just think on a crew and camera people world, they really had to work hard to convince them that this this was awesome. And and mm -hmm. sure enough, the audiences proved it was right. Uh, so I just thought that was really cool. I love the way it dealt with diversity. I love the way it dealt with uh, tough issues of mental health. And it, the, the jumping around genre thing was just really unique about it. So I came in um, second season. I, it was a Zoom meeting with, the, with um, Sarah and Deb, Sarah, uh, uh, much like this. And um, to me, that's just a matter of saying what you love about the show, what you love, what, what you did with it. And then they brought me on. Um, there was nothing new that we wanted to do with it. We just wanted to make, deliver the show uh, as good, if not better than what it had been before, right? Uh, there was lots to work with what, what they had discovered in the first season. They had gone through a lot of trouble to figure out what the voice of it was. Mm -hmm. And, and they worked with, a, you know, five other directors in the first season. So I just looked at it like to answer your question, I just looked at it like, how do I ensure that this is the, the quality level of, of it is as great as it can be? And also to create a great environment for the cast and crew and take the stress away that the what first seasons tend to have. Right. And yeah. get us smoothly into giving them giving them that space to do this again, which I think they really did. Um, you know, it's funny. I think about 
oftentimes a criticism I'll have of like a TV show mm-hmm. is like, I'll say from a performance perspective, like these two people aren't in the same show. One person is doing something super heightened and somebody's doing something mm-hmm. super grounded. And it's like, I don't know to make how to make heads or tails of this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of the recipe, right. Mm-hmm. For your show mm-hmm. as a director, how do you, how do you dial that in for performers? And also mm-hmm. how do you gut check it? How do you know you're doing it right? You know what I mean? Because it's, <laughs> it, it, because it's so fresh and so new, it, you know, some of those old instincts aren't correct anymore. Yeah. I don't know. That's uh, it's the, this show is different from others. It's a very particular brainchild of um, Sarah and Deb. And the one thing that this benefits from is we would try versions of it. So there would be oftentimes there'd be experiments with how we're toning something as we go along mm-hmm. the way. But um, the, again, me coming in the second season, the cast also knew that this was part of the part of the the voice of this show was that it was able to jump jump around. You know, it's Christmas episodes, and there was in the first season there were crazy Halloween episodes where there were mm-hmm. little horror moments to it, right? So to me that's it just the beauty of the show was in that it's it celebrates and loves diversity in its characters the characters are flawed and weird and troubled and they make crazy mistakes and the show it gives you this license to be off and mm-hmm. change gears uh because it doesn't it's not attempting to take itself so seriously and live in some so so perfect world right it's kind of like, I think one of you said a little earlier about comedy and the difficulty of comedy versus drama, but you can set yourself free from these things when you're not sitting in this world of, you have to be perfectly aligned mm-hmm. to, a, to a tone or a voice that you've set up. This, this one just had this freedom to it and, and the, the ingredients of it just worked so well for audiences. The reach of the show is incredible for that. But on a take-by-take basis, are you saying, like, you're in a scene and you're like, okay, try this one screwball. Ground this <laughs> one. A little more YA. Is it, are you shifting that hard in between different no. takes? Or yeah. you, or you kind of have a, a better sense of what needs to be what on a scene basis? Yeah, it's probably not as wide a thing as that because the scene itself will determine that. Mm-hmm. So we would know, you know, what beat we're playing in this show. The, sure, uh, sure. As you as you mentioned in that little the little blurb that you read that I've never seen that sounds awesome, <laughs> uh, is that the first episode was toned darker than the than so we knew going in in our discussions and prepping the show that it had to follow what where the season one <laughs> finale had left off right so that that was my guide and um, there was a great deal of work that went into how we were how we were um, representing the mental health issues. So there's a ton of these really interesting scenes where a teenager is struggling with mental health and we had a very clear guidance on how we were going to handle that, right? So there's all these things. You go into a scene, you know where you're sitting with it. And I had the advantage of knowing that in the first season, this, this, this cool mashup was really worked in, a, in an unusual, interesting, unique, and really new, fresh way. So, so um, you just sort of, trust in that and let it go. I, I kind of recall there was this, the first scene we did of the show was a random uh, episode two middle scene, right? Mm-hmm. And there was this 
sort of anticipation that morning of, oh, this, this show has really took off in the first season and I hope we can repeat it. And there's a little bit of anxiousness about, does it work? Does it work? And then within take one or take two of that, the cast just falls into it and they, mm-hmm. they remember their place in it and they remember how well it works and, the, and they remember that the material comes alive so easily for them, right? That has to do to me with a great, a, a great casting and um, the writing that matches the casting. It's just one of those weird things where this thing blows up. Are you involved in the casting at all? Like the day players or kind of new characters that are added for season two? Absolutely. All the new characters for season two. So obviously I wasn't around for season one in the main cast. Uh, but in the first episode of this, of the second season, we cast the families of a couple of the, of the characters and spent quite a bit of time with them throughout the season. I would deal with the casting for the main parts. And that was really fun. We had to cast the kids for the younger versions of the main characters. So we did a bunch of callbacks with little kids that came up a lot. Uh, but also for the episodic guest actors, the uh, guest director for their episode would cast their own stuff, right? So, oh, cool. Um, yeah. So, and are again, you casting a lot of Canadians since you're shooting in Canada? In that show, yeah. The 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 ones and twos and threes and fours are uh, Americans, and uh, Diesel is from Australia. And, uh, Can but, you tell us what you mean by ones and twos and threes? Are oh, you talking oh, about the people, sorry. the call yeah, sheet? The, yeah, the order? call sheet numbers. Yeah, so the for the the leads are uh, American and a couple of Australians, and then a great deal of the cast is from Toronto or Canada, and that's the other thing that really attracted me in the project in the first place too, because it was a ton of really great actors that I knew quite well from working with them in in oh, Toronto. That's awesome. Doing doing a show that's, that's really yeah, that's awesome. Doing, yeah. Since you're since you're jumping between these different genres and stuff, are you pulling references? Are you like, oh, there was a sequence in Scream, or I love this, like, <laughs> yeah. You know, and you're yeah, showing yeah. the DP that and things like that. Uh, yeah. I mean, we the, it doesn't matter what show it's on. I I have a I have a lot of fun finding references that people know. No matter what, everything we do has been done in some way or another. We can refer to it, right? Mm-hmm. Last week on on uh, Good Doc, we were doing a sequence and we were referencing things like Ferris Bueller's Day Off and and so forth. And so it's it's easy. It's so easy to communicate with people when you're able to you know draw on something that everybody knows so intuitively. So yeah, right. Yeah, when you yeah. do that shot of the whole gang walking down the hallway in slow motion and <laughs> tilt up from their shoes. <laughs> yeah, you know, friends of our dogs. Yeah, for sure. My last question was very much a selfish question. We, t- we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but mm. uh, Matt and I are both married to actors. Should we just like move to Canada and try <laughs> to become TV directors there and have our wives just be cast in, yeah. in everything? Because we are it, not that Canada is not competitive. At, I'm sure it's very competitive and Toronto is basically seems like the TV capital <laughs> of the world right now. Um, mm. But in terms of like, directing talent and acting talent like LA, you know, Hollywood is is still Hollywood. It's where so many people are headquartered and where, you know, the best yeah. directors and the best actors in, in the world are here and yeah. you're constantly competing against them. Is there, is there some advantage in going to Canada, like you said, and maybe being more of like a medium fish in a medium pond <laughs> as opposed to a small I- fish in a big pond? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm a Canadian and I built my career in Canada and I'm so grateful for 
Canada to provide me for that, right? Like Canada supports its creative people. It has a mandate to support its people because it has a giant pond next door full of a lot of fish that are going to eat all the food unless we, we help them out. I love the industry there. They look after us. Most of the time when people reach a certain point in their career, they're going to come to the United States and they're going to work here, right? A lot of times too, showrunners, writers, directors also then come back to Canada and they know that they're, they have mm-hmm. a certain... So there's, there's um, sometimes there's a level of you know, budgets, especially in television. There's a level of the people that you're going to work with that you, you reach there in Canada and people want to branch out. Um, but also there's a real beauty to just working in your hometown and telling Canadian stories. It's, it's a little bit about representation and, and there is differences between Canadian entertainment and American entertainment and Canada wants to support that and celebrate that. And that's a really awesome thing, right? Uh, for people career building, they're always looking towards the United States uh, and the industry down here to, to get to the next level. And that's, that's obviously been my path in, in my career. Also, I will say that, uh, especially lately, most shows that I'm on in Canada have some part in either the financing or there's some network influence from a U.S. network. So mm-hmm. they are, they are a co-production really, or something. Yeah, it's a co-production yeah. of some kind and their money is coming from there and their broadcast broadcasting happens down here. Um, and Canada has a ton of these. How I was able to uh, get involved in bigger, better American projects is because they're shooting in Canada and I was mm-hmm. a director that happened to be there. It wasn't any cheaper for them. I was sometimes obviously, you know, from a different city, but uh, it just sort of puts you on the map a little more with people, with crews, um, producers that are working up there. It's it's funny because the there's in the, the DGA, the main production centers in North America are... Los Angeles, New York, Toronto, and Vancouver, right? Two of them are from another country. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, it does make me think about, you know, there's a lot of talk and, you know, potentially a, a strike on the writer's mm-hmm. side yeah. about how Hollywood right now um, isn't especially, you know, friendly to early and mid career writers in particular, but I think directors have a a little bit of a challenge too, because it's Mm. episode orders are shorter, right? So if you're doing eight episodes of a TV show, you know, that's uh, way fewer, you know, uh, directors that you're hiring writers Mm -hmm. that are on staff, all of that stuff shrinks down. And so uh, the ability to find a livelihood you can sustain for an entire year or, you know, many years in this case. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just a, it's harder and a different landscape than it used to be. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, listeners at home, if you've got like a, a, an opportunity to build a career and kind of level up before you want to go out to, um, you know, a quote unquote bigger market, Mm -hmm. I, 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 I'd count to 10 for sure. I'd, I'd enjoy some, <laughs> some, yeah. uh, some comedies in Canada for a minute. For sure. <laughs> let, the, let the dust settle a little bit, you know? Yeah, yeah. Toronto is like a very unique situation. Cause we're talking about, you know, shows like the good doctor charmed. I mean, these are yeah, big mega shows, yeah, big yeah. budget network shows, yeah. American network shows that maybe are filming in Toronto, you know, handmade sale. Like there's all these mm-hmm, like giant, stuff. um, uh, successful shows that are filming there. And mm-hmm. like you said, 
you know, if you have Tim Burton directing Wednesday and let's say it's shooting in Canada, I don't know where it's shot, but mm-hmm. let's say it is. And they're mm-hmm. like, Tim's got half the episodes and we got four other episodes open. You know, yeah. we would love to hire yeah. some local people, yeah. um, you know, for tax credit reasons or for uh, saving money or just, um, you know, to mix things up. And then again, like in terms of casting, like, you know, if you're okay with being number five, six or seven on the call sheet, yeah. you know, like our wives here who book, you know, they've both been on HBO shows and have done yeah. things, but every every single role they go up for, they're probably against like a famous person, you know, yeah. that lives in LA and would love to conveniently leave their house in the morning and shoot, you know, Absolutely. an episode of TV and get back to their family at night. So there is something about being in Canada where you're still doing, you're still accessing these same A-list American TV shows, but with just a lot less competition and a lot more snow. The, the, the acting world is actually a great example of that because there are some amazing careers that people have built as actors, especially in cities like Vancouver, where they can work very regularly doing, um, there's just such a steady stream of television that's done there, right? Uh, and they're up against less com- competition. Um, that's a very, it's a very good point. Directors. I'm ready to move. <laughs> yeah. How much does a house cost in Toronto or Vancouver? Yeah. yeah. yeah well, well, uh, you guys, I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. Take <laughs> but you do have to be a Canadian citizen in order yes. to get like the Canadian content tax credits and all that stuff, right? Yeah. I feel like honestly, in my trajectory, the, the tax credit issue and your residency thing was far more important when I was working in the Canadian system mm-hmm. on shows that are Canadian because of their budget levels. They need to be actually in a pr- provincial jurisdiction. That's why my actual residency is Ontario. Mm-hmm. Lately, I've been shooting a lot in Vancouver and something like the good doctor doesn't care about the tax credit. They're going to choose a director that's going to mm-hmm. the show, right? And that's amazing. I, I, I'm grateful for that. Um, I'm, yeah, so yes, you do have to be a resident and I, 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 you may just look at it more like what the, is the small pond. You said this a little earlier. If you're from a smaller city and you're, uh, you're deciding, should I be moving to Los Angeles to build this career? Then start by just looking in your backyard and what you can What's shooting there? Yeah, yeah. What you can climb, climb up closer by. Before I spent many years in my twenties when I was starting out making films, coming here to Los Angeles and knocking on doors and trying to get attention, and nobody would pay attention to a you know a Canadian newbie, right? Whereas in Canada, I was able to um, you know build. Yeah. I mean, it is the people we've talked to, like a Zach Lepofsky, who's been on the podcast, mm-hmm. who is now, you know, he started out doing Disney Channel shows because they needed Canadian directors. Yeah. And now he's yeah. doing Final Destination 6. <laughs> is see. that right? I didn't see that. That's awesome. Congrats, um, Zach. And then I had pitched this show. I was attached to direct this, this uh, series with yeah. CW in the US. And it was like we ended up getting it co-financed by CBC in Canada. Yeah, so I flew to Canada to Toronto. I pitched the show with everyone, and then when we got greenlit, it was like the budget was a little tight, and they needed all the tax credits they could get. And they're like, "Hey, Oren, you can't direct the show. (laughs) We need a Canadian director because we already have American show creator, uh, like American writers, um, and so just 
to so they basically were like you're an ep and you here's some money oh, wow. to go away and know. that was the first time where i was like oh if i was canadian yeah this would not have happened like when i was starting out i'd fall i paid attention to directors careers and how they manage this in canada because it's it's our mm-hmm. it's always our question when when they leave their their hometown and there's all kinds of routes. There, there's Canadians that or Americans that had dual citizenship or something and then chose to work in Canada and they were able to accelerate the, their career. But your story there is a really bad, sad story of sort of a reverse, uh, whatever, discrimination against someone because they weren't Canadian. And, and that's yeah. too bad. It's usually Turns out people way. don't like Americans after all. <laughs> No, we we love you. Vancouver is full of American crews and cast and actors, and uh, you know the majority of the above the line people there, directors and the writers, are coming up from LA and and working there and shooting their shows there. It's rare now. I, I actually an interesting example is I I started in Vancouver. I grew up there. I started making shorts and stuff in Vancouver when I got broke into comedy TV. I was looking at what was going on in Vancouver. It was things like Poltergeist and Outer Limits and mm-hmm. TV shows like that. They were hiring Canadian directors, but there was this small echelon of maybe four or five really great directors that were repeatedly being used. And then the rest were um, coming up from the United States. So that just wasn't available to me. What was available was little shows that were coming out of Toronto and very few of them shot in Vancouver. So I had to make a decision to leave, put to leave my life behind and move to Toronto and change my residency. So I made those sacrifices. That's the side of the, the business that you guys maybe don't hear directors complain about too much, but, but you, you do, you make a ton of sacrifices for, for your, the, the job that you love and put it all that aside and move to different cities. Yeah, I I don't know that the show is light on complaining. <laughs> <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I never complain, but man, yeah, yeah. Uh, can't stand that guy. Yeah. I'm always complaining. Um, just kidding. Well, James, thanks so much for coming and talking oh, to us. Hey. Yeah, we're excited about Ginny and Georgia. And I, I mean, all your shows, obviously, you seems like yeah there's a lot of stuff there's a lot to see from you is there do you know what's next for you do are you allowed to tell us anything Uh, interesting um yeah i guess like i'm doing a show for that's actually a cbc and paramount show that's going to shoot in ontario and north bay Um, and then i think i'm going to do a pilot that's probably i can't really talk about quite yet but that's hey congrats yeah that's awesome and there are way more can you tell us is that canadian for a Canadian broadcaster also? The crazy thing is both those happen to be um, uh, CBC in combination with something else. I with believe. someone else. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure. But ag- again, that's a great example of how it's working up there most of the time. They're hungry for ideas and, and the best quality and, and you know talent. So they're doing what they have to do. And both those shows, you're, they, they've been written, they've been greenlit uh, yeah. and they attached you to come direct. Yeah, well, the pilot is not secured yet, and it has to do with dates. And the, the whole thing in this job, of course, is the uh, the opportunity costs and what what you're available for mm-hmm. and not available for, and the decisions you make along the way. Um, so I can't be certain that that's going to work out, but it'd be nice. And that's awesome. Yeah. Well, fingers yeah, crossed, and let us know. Come on back when that pilot's in the can and a huge <laughs> yeah. hit. And um, yeah, right. uh, in the yeah. meantime, do you have a few more minutes to hang out and endorse with us? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Unpaid endorsements. So my unpaid endorsement this week is a little bit of a cheat because it's actually homework for an upcoming episode, an upcoming interview. We're having the creator and director of the show, Paul T. Goldman, coming soon. Uh, This this director, Jason Walliner. And so Warren knows him and he was like, oh, we'll have Jason on. This will be great. And I've been a longtime fan. Like many of our great guests, I've met them at like preschool and daycare. So he's got this show on Peacock called Paul T. Goldman that is really wild. You know, if you liked the rehearsal and or true crime, it's a it's really genre bending. And, you know, Jason directed a bunch of Nathan for you's, right? Yes, I forgot that. Yes, yes. So this show is about a guy who uh, messaged uh, Jason on Twitter with this crazy story about how his wife is involved in this crazy crime ring. um, And he's written a book about it. And then also the the screenplay adaptation of the book. And he's in he's pitched it to to this creator, Jason, and he wants to make it a show. And so it's like partially the quote-unquote movie that this man has written partially documentary like talking head like errol morris style documentary part so like basically recreation and then the documentary and then also behind the scenes of the movie they're making but as it evolves the narrator this character paul this man paul becomes less and less reliable and you realize that he's fabricated a lot of this book and that maybe he's got his own agendas and the director jason kind of becomes a character in it as well and you kind of don't oh, know are you caught up what i i'm not 100 <laughs> caught up yet i'm not 100 yeah. caught up yet but i'm so There's into only it. one episode left yeah I, I can't wait i'm so into it but it's like if errol morris and oh. nathan for you and serial maybe or just like a little bit of like modern true crime all kind of came together with a real dark sense of humor it's pretty great it's pretty wild paul t goldman on peacock is crazy it's a really weird show james yeah you got some new headphones today you want to talk about those (laughs) or did i have both endorsed headphones on the show before (laughs) these are six dollars the best off the road there yeah there you go so far they work fine yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, when people ask me what to read about it, I, I read about directing. I always, I always talk about the book that William Friedkin did. Did you ever read his memoir? It's awesome. No, tell us more. Oh, well, he's, he's a seventies Hollywood director, exorcist. Sure. And yeah, you know, and he just has an awesome memoir. It's been years that I read it, but that's one that I often quote. I think it's just his, his name. Oh yeah, that's the freaking yeah, connection, the memoir. The connection, yeah, and yeah, it's that's awesome. I loved it because he talks a lot. You don't get this a lot in directors' memoirs. He he writes a lot about the technique and the craft, and but then he also talks about the the real up and down swing that his career took, and you know Hollywood's dark corners that he visited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so I love that one. When you're asking about it before, I was going to say, what do I, what am I going to pitch? And, and the, the only other thing I can say is uh, back to the CBC and my love for the CBC, there's a show I do with a bunch of friends in Nova Scotia called Moonshine that we're, we're on the third season of it. I've only done like four episodes over three years, but it's this, we shoot it out on, on beaches in Nova Scotia and it's, uh, 
uh, this um, friend of mine, Sherry Elwood, basically a story of her family working on a build, building a campground and the, the, the family battle that goes on in this uh, resort campground in Nova Scotia. Well, mine is, uh, is not good. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's literally like a TikToker. <laughs> There's this guy, yeah. his name is uh, Daniel LaBelle. Um, I'm posting in the chat here a video of his uh, called Chivalry is Not Dead Part 3. Um, I'm sure if you've like literally gone on TikTok or accidentally clicked on the stories section of like Facebook or something, you might have like come upon his videos. You know, they're mostly shot in vertical. But I don't know. Oh. It kind of reminds me of like Buster Keaton or something. You know, like um, he's just this guy uh, and he has this video uh, the one that I'm talking about where when his, his wife texts him when he gets home and he's like running around the house just to make, she, he's like the house husband and she's off at work. And when she comes home, he's just trying to make her life easy by like opening all the doors for her, you know, like helping like microwave things. And it's just this perfectly choreographed video of him running all over the place. This other one he did is so uh, yeah, I've, dumb. I've seen this one actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, it's footage of him Running, running with a, a cameraman color. shooting him, yeah. also running. And it just reminds me of like just all, how we all started filmmaking. Yeah. Holding so, a camera, chasing our friends down the street, you know, yeah. jumping through windows, just doing the dumbest things. Like, yeah, it's awesome. there's no storytelling. It's just 100% pure action. Well, if people want to <laughs> learn more about you, James, uh, do you tweet? Are you on Instagram? Is there a place? I have a website with my. Uh... Go on it, I guess. But uh, what is it? JamesGen.com. Yeah, JamesGen.com. JamesGenNotGun.com. <laughs> That's right. You guys are awesome. I'm gonna say once more. I think it's awesome what you're doing and get, and spending your time and donating your weekday evenings to uh, support other directors. If you have questions for us, you can tweet at us at just shoot it pod, email us at just shoot at gmail.com, and you can follow us across all social media at just shoot a pod. I'm at Mr. Matt Edmo. And I'm on Instagram at O'Kaplan. On Twitter, I'm at Smitey Pileg. And I've been, I'm, I'm putting more stuff on Instagram, so check it out. Rate us on iTunes if you get a chance. Um, our editor is Noah Bayshore. Our producer is Tyler Small. And uh, you're listening to music from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And we will catch you next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye.